5 and Hebrews 8, please. We glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well done, Victoria. Henza. Also, Isaac. An apocalypse for right now. That's what I call 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. That stunning and rich passage. But the power of the scriptures lies in their combination with one another, in their explosive correlation, as we're going to see as we mix this up a little bit. Before doing a straight exegesis of this passage, I'm interweaving it with Hebrews, as we've said before, and we're mixing it up a little bit first before we do the straight exegesis. An apocalypse for right now. Five of our affirmations that we began the year with, the ten affirmations of the Telestai Phalanx, five of them are right in this chapter. We are always confident, 2 Corinthians 5.6. We walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.7. We are completely open before God, 5.11. This is where we are right now and should always be. The love of Christ controls us arrests and holds us, 514, and we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And we're going to learn that that means be what you are, aligned to the reality of what you are. Let the truth be your truth. We hear a lot about my truth. Well, there is the truth. And blessed are those whose truth is the truth. Blessed are you if your truth is the truth. In 2 Corinthians 5.7, in connection with 5.14, we have faith and love. We perceive by a faith that works by or works together with love in Galatians 5, 5 and 6. We wait for the hope of righteousness by the Holy Spirit, by faith that works with love. What God is doing in this congregation is bringing us to a transformation of our perspective. And by that, I mean he's bringing us into an eternal perspective. When you have an eternal perspective, your whole view of all things changes. And we talk about it a lot. We talk about having an eternal perspective. But I'll ask you a question. It's a question that we'll entertain as we go through this apocalypse for right now. What's the difference between Genesis 1-1, where it says, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. What's the difference between that declaration and this declaration? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. To him that inhabits eternity and to him or her with a perspective that's eternal, there is no difference. For at the moment of in the beginning, hey, arche, who is Christ, the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, happened simultaneously when God was in Christ the slaughtered lamb from the foundation of the world, reconciling the world to himself. You say, that's quite a stretch, not if you're inhabiting eternity, not if your horizon is with the high and holy one who inhabits eternity. And so that's a question that we'll fill in the answer to as we go. At the heart of this apocalypse for right now is the announcement in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now we know of an apocalypse, we've studied it before. There were 30 apocalypses or so that were published in the first, around the first century AD. Only one is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ that came forth from him, came from the Father and from Jesus Christ himself to John on the Isle of Patmos for the churches including our church. And at the climax of that apocalypse, there was the announcement of a new creation. 
the enthroned God, which is the same as the crucified Christ, said, look, I'm making everything new. So at the heart and the climax of an apocalypse, there is the announcement of all things being made new. And our little apocalypse here in 2 Corinthians 5.17, right in the heart, we have something similar. Look at it. My translation reads this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, kinekatesis, the announcement of a new creation is there. The old has passed away. Look, everything has become new. The Apocalypse of John, which is better known as the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.1, announces a new creation. So does our little apocalypse for right now, right in the heart of it in 5.17, a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, and we will learn, and this is a shocker to some people, everyone is. If anyone is in Christ, and everyone is. How do you say that, someone will say? Because all died with the old creation, the old man, the old covenant. All died to sin in Christ and were raised up with the new creation. Remember, we are starting off this little apocalypse in 2 Corinthians 5.14. If one died for all, and that's a fulfilled condition, one did die for all. One and if you want to review that little term one, I would recommend a reading, a careful reading of Romans 5:15 to 19. A careful reading of it on your own. And we will hit it sometime, no doubt, down the road. If one died for all, then all died. Since one died for all, fulfilled condition, he did. Then all died. Now, I said before, the power of the scriptures lies in its creative combination with other scriptures. Romans 6.10 says that Christ died, this one who died in Romans 6.7, died to sin once and for all. A key word, Ephapax, which comes into Hebrews, where it's used again as a key word, once and for all. He died to sin. And so Paul makes this astonishing command in verse 11. So reckon yourselves. Align to the reality that you also died to sin. He who died to sin died once to sin. And in his resurrection he lives evermore to God. Reckon yourselves. That means align to this reality. Align yourselves to this reality. That when one died to sin for all, all died to sin. In Romans 6, 7, that means all were liberated from sin in his death. And reckon yourselves also to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. If one died for all, and he did, then all died. That's an unconditional conclusion. An unconditioned judgment. That's a fact. In fact, it's upon that conclusion that Paul said, the love of Christ controls me now. How? Why does the love of Christ control you? Because I concluded that since one died for all, then all died. When, all, when he died for all, he died to sin for all. He who never knew sin's pleasure experienced sin's pain. He who never knew the pleasures of sin, as Hebrews 11 puts it, knew the pain and consequences and wages that sin pays. He who never worked for sin, like we all did, nevertheless got the wages of sin and was paid 
those wages in the death of the cross. The Bible commands us to be what we are. If God has reconciled us to himself in Christ, we are reconciled to God in Christ. And so when we say be reconciled to God, we're simply saying be what you are. Align to the new reality of what you are. We can also say become what you've already become. And so to stretch this out a little bit with a little bit of commentary, therefore, if anyone is in Christ and everyone is. See, Paul goes on, to, Paul says in 516, I determined to know no one, no man, no person any longer after the flesh. Notice he said, no, there's no exception to that. Every person in Paul's evaluation is not evaluated by him any longer as he used to evaluate every person in 516. So I said I'm mixing it up, and I am mixing it up before we straighten it out. I determined to know no person any longer after the flesh. I even knew Christ that way, he said once. Once Paul, a Pharisee, knew Christ after the flesh, according to the way he was perceived by those who were enemies of Christ. He perceived then his death to be a shameful death of a criminal, a heretic, a blasphemer. Once I knew Christ that way, Paul said, not anymore. Now I know him as the Messiah in whose death all died. In his death for sins. And that doesn't mean he died for sins. It means he died for all who sinned. All sinners. In place of all sinners. In his death, he was justified away from sin. When he died, we died. When he died, he died to sin. When he died, all died to sin. When he was raised, all were raised in him. Therefore, every person I see from now on, Paul says, I see in Christ. Well, what do you say to those people? I say, awake and rise from the dead. Why? Because you've risen from the dead in Christ. Be what you are. And to get right to the point of this, if human beings are reconciled by their own personal individual faith in Jesus Christ, then some of the world are reconciled to God, and others have yet to be. But if the world has been reconciled to God in Christ and by Christ's faithfulness, and that is the case, if all have been reconciled to God in Christ, by his obedience to the extent of the death of the cross, then the whole world is reconciled to God. Though some, maybe even especially today a vast majority, have not been awakened to that fact. So we don't need to be woke, we need to wake up. Woke is Satan's adversarial attack preceding the awakening that's really going to wake people up. Woke leads to hate. Woke is hate. It's rooted in hate, divisiveness, hatred, and even now murderous acts which are rewarded by a government ruled by Satan, by people governed by Satan, that is, I'm saying. Nothing specific there. By people governed by Satan applaud murderous acts. And we live in a world today where woke leads to murderous acts, leads to divisiveness and hate. It's hate itself. Whereas the awakening that is coming from the knowledge of Christ and his universal saving significance is a movement of love. 
It is love itself. Those who are awakened are compelled, impelled, controlled from within by the love of Christ. See all humanity included in Christ. Hate is driven out. Fear is driven out. Divisiveness. We know no person according to the flesh. For whatever kind of personage they present to us and to sight, we see them as in Christ. For when Christ died, all died. When Christ rose, all rose in him. So when we say in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, we're saying, be what you are. You've risen, you've risen together with Christ. You just have to wake up to it. Be awakened. And that's what I believe is going to supplant the evil movements of Satan, the adversary. And that he will be defeated by an awakening. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then everyone is. Because all died with the old creation, the old man, the old covenant. All died to sin in Christ and were raised up with Christ as a new creation. A new creation. It's stunning in the Greek because it just appears there. It says, new creation. It's an announcement. That's what an apocalypse does. It announces a new creation. It doesn't announce catastrophe. It announces a new creation. And some are saying, and I know some of you, not maybe here, but there are people that I know are impatient about, what's this got to do with Hebrews? Well, let me... I'll just hit that right off instead of waiting for it. Hebrews 8.13. Just let's go there so we'll, inter we'll interweave this. Hebrews 8.13. Let me, let me think. What does it say? By saying new, this is where the writer takes off. The whole passage we've been studying now for months, really, is the announcement of God the Lord of Israel, in Jeremiah the prophet of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Septuagint 38, 31 to 34, Hebrews 8, 8, B through 12. Now the pastor teacher who wrote Hebrews does his own little commentary on that, and he simply says, by saying new, who said new? The Lord in Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant by saying new ento legain kainain by saying new he the Lord makes the first obsolete. He makes the first covenant obsolete. Now what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether. This is why I believe that the Hebrews homily was written just before the destruction of Jerusalem and if you've been paying attention on Wednesdays we've dealt with that subject of this announces the destruction of the temple the vanishing away of all the institutions related to the old covenant it was this audience this initial recipients of this homily were right on the verge of the destruction of Jerusalem the vanishing altogether the cessation of the sacrifices, the destruction of the stone temple, which to the Jew was their universe. And uh, the last two Wednesdays we dealt with that. And so right at the heart of Hebrews we have the announcement of a new covenant, but with the new covenant a new creation. The old becomes obsolete. Your association with the old Adam in whom all die is obsolete, antiquated. It's no more. My association with the first man, Adam, with the first creation, is no more. Everything's passed away in that connection. All things have become new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and this is my comment, the PT commented on Jeremiah 31, I'm commenting on Paul's 
passage. If anyone is in Christ, and I say, and everyone is. And Paul basically said that in 5.14. Because all died with the old creation, the old man, the old covenant. And all died to sin and were raised up with the new creation. Paul says, look, reckon yourselves. That means align with this new reality. Make it your truth. This is the truth. You can make it your truth or you can have your own little my truth and be far from the truth. But make this the truth your truth because it's the only truth anyways. Your truth is this truth anyways, no matter what you say your truth is. You died together with Christ to sin, to your association with sin, your association with being a nemesis of God. You died to the old. You died to the old. And you cannot die to the old without being raised together with Christ to live to God. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul does it a little bit different. This is almost contemporaneous with Romans, though 2 Corinthians came first chronologically. In Romans, Paul says, reckon yourselves, therefore, to have died with Christ and to be alive to God like Jesus is in resurrection in Christ Jesus. If all died when he died and all were raised when he was raised, then Paul said the new normal should be that we should no longer live to ourselves, curvature in ad se, with a curvature into ourself. But to him, out from ourselves, apart from ourselves, outside of ourselves, to him whom God raised from the dead, 2 Corinthians 5.15. It's just a new sensible way to live. Make that your truth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then everyone is. And then it simply says in the Greek, kinekatesis, new creation. There's the new creation. What is the new creation? Anyone and anything that's in Christ is the new creation. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. In Christ, God makes the new creation and made the new creation. The whole meaning of the new creation is simply a being in Christ. The old, ta-archaia, where we get our word archaic. Ta-archaia, that means the totality of the old. Like ta-panta is the totality of all things, all beings, rational and subrational, All created beings, all created reality. Ta-panta, all created reality. The totality of reality is to be summed up in Christ. That's the mystery of God's will. It's the mystery of the cross. It's the mystery of God's will. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, the old, and that means the totality of the old, the antiquated, the no longer current or applicable, as Isaiah 43, 18 says, and that is, this is an allusion to Isaiah 43.18. Things and events that are not to be dwelled on any longer. A therapist might want to take you to things and events that you should dwell on in the past that caused you trauma. The Bible says, nope, give no thought to those things any longer. I don't look at things that are behind, but I press on, Paul said, the secret of sanity. Very odd, too, because Paul was charged with being nuts. Crazy. He, this is a, it begins, this apocalypse begins with Paul answering the accusation that he was crazy. We say very crudely, a nutcase. Or as my dad used to say, and my sisters and I still laugh at this, nutcake. He heard us say someone's a nutcase, and then a couple weeks later he said, you know what, that guy is a nutcake. <laughs> well, Paul was accused of being a nutcake. Jesus was accused of having a demon. 
and even worse, being a Samaritan. The Jews said to him, are you not a Samaritan and do you not have a demon? Jesus didn't deny being a Samaritan because he identified with the Samaritans as he identifies with all humankind. But he simply said, very simply, I don't have a demon. Socrates, the great philosopher, had a demon, he said, and bragged about it and was proud of it. Of course, a demon doesn't, didn't look like Dante's demons. A demon was a divine-type teacher, a, an angelic-type creature who teaches, an invisible teacher, an invisible mentor. Socrates claimed to have one, he did, proud of it. Jesus said, I don't have a demon, meaning I'm not like Socrates in that my wisdom does not come from a, an earthly wisdom, a demon of this earth, but my father. It comes from my father in heaven. And I and my father, uh, we happen to be one. The old, that means all the old, Has passed away. The old in its totality has passed away. Imagine reading an obituary in the paper. Passed away. The old. All of it. Look. I think behold kind of works here because we get the point. Behold means look. Everything has become new. From the eternal perspective, do you dare see from the eternal perspective? If you do, you see everything has become new. So how can you judge somebody after the old? How can you view someone apart from the old? You're kind of almost forced and driven by the love of Christ for everybody. The new being in Christ has come. The old being in Adam, in whom I'll die, has passed away. The new being in Christ, in whom all are made alive, has come. Behold, the old being in Adam who dies has passed away. So Paul is determined not to know any person after the old way according to the flesh, because every person is in Christ, having died with Christ and having been raised together with him into new life. This isn't something we can make happen. It's something that we're urged to regard and acknowledge as being the truth, as being reality, and as being our truth and our reality. Romans 6, 6 through 11, if you want to get there and read that on your own sometime. We reckon or acknowledge the old self to be crucified with Christ. Why? Because the old self has been crucified with Christ. That's why. And raised by the glory of the Father, in Romans 6, 4. We reckon ourselves to have died to sin, because when the one died to sin, all died to sin in order to live to God. Now the translations of the last clause in 2 Corinthians five seventeen vary. Some say, behold, the new has come. Simply, the new has come. Others say, behold, all things have been made new, adding the all things. Either is correct, however, and even if all things is not part of the original Greek text, it is included in 518, the very next verse, where it says, all these things are from God. Everything is from God. I tend to favor the translation that says behold, or I like the word look, but with an exclamation point. All things have been made new. First reason I like that better is because it correlates elegantly with 
Revelation 21.5. One thing physicists and astrophysicists are saying now, one word they're using now is elegant. They're forced to see in the order of the universe, especially as they're seeing billions more light years of it, that there's an elegance to it. And that's what I see in the scriptures. There's an elegance in the scripture. There's an elegance in the correlations to the scripture. And the passage we're looking at correlates elegantly with Revelation 21.5 when you combine it with 6. Because the enthroned God, the same as the crucified Christ, says, look, I'm making all things new in Revelation 21.5. He adds quite immediately, it is done in 21.6. So when Paul says, look, all things have become new, that agrees perfectly with what the enthroned God said, Jesus Christ and him crucified, saying to Telestai, he's saying, look, I'm making everything new. It's done. It's done. There's an eternal perspective involved here. It puts you in a place of amazing rest, by the way, to have that eternal perspective. It makes you actually enter into the rest of God. Remember Hebrews 4? They shall not enter my rest because of unbelief. All things have been made new. So first, I accept that, all things in 2 Corinthians 5.17, because it correlates elegantly with Revelation 21.5 and 21.6. Second, that all things have been made new already harmonizes with the reality of an accomplished reconciliation of the world by God. Paul says God has reconciled us, meaning you and me, the new covenant community, and then he's given us the word or the message of the ministry of this reconciliation, the diakonia and the logos. We have both the ministry and the message of this reconciliation. But then he goes on to say, what I mean by that is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their transgressions to them. The world, I don't mean just us. We, are, we, us, the New Covenant community, is part of the us, which is the whole world. The only distinction is we know that we've been reconciled to God in Christ, and they don't. So when we say be reconciled to God, we are simply saying be what you are. Align to this new reality that's yours, this new truth that is your truth. Make your truth this truth, because it is the truth. And as I've said many times before, we don't say believe and you'll be reconciled. We say you've been reconciled, believe it. The church needs to be reconciled to the fact that God reconciled the world to himself. Otherwise, they're not going to be an, an effective ambassadors. They're not going to be, we won't be effective ambassadors beseeching the world effectively. So whatever rendition we accept, the modern Greek interestingly says tapanta egenain nea, nea. From neos, which is the synonym to kainos. So the modern Greek New Testament actually captures the idea that tapanta, everything, has come to the new or to be new. Everything has come to be new. The sense that everyone and everything has been made new is the sense of this verse. And this also makes sense of the new way of perceiving and valuing all people. It's a transformation of our valuation. We already look right past how people dress, how they think, what they wear, who they say they are, 
which may or not may not be who Jesus Christ says they are. We look right past that. We see everyone as being in Christ. If one died for all, and he did, then all died, and they did. Then when he rose, did not all rise with him? All rise. They say that when Aaron Judge gets up to bat. I say that about the Son of Man. All rise. Now some, again, may be a little troubled at our detour or our excursion into 2 Corinthians, but I've tried to demonstrate that the interweaving of these two writings is both warranted and beneficial. At the heart of the passage we're dealing with in 2 Corinthians is the declaration of the new creation and the location of our study in Hebrews 8.13 where the pastor teacher is in our commentary is by saying new. He makes the first obsolete. So what's close to vanishing altogether in the perspective or in the horizon of the author and the initial readers of Hebrews has vanished altogether in our perspective, our horizon. On our horizon, we see all the old has vanished. All things have been made new. It is done. We're dealing here with a radical alteration of our perspective. If that doesn't happen under the ministry of the word, all we're getting is pep talks every Sunday morning. Pep talks. Moral essays. Be better. Act better. Be nicer. But we're dealing here with a radical alteration of our valuation by the love of Christ controlling us. It's a conversion to ultimate reality is what it is. It's a conversion to ultimate reality in a day and age which cherishes fantasy of all things. The ultimate reality that is Jesus. For everyone who is in Christ is an integral part of the new creation already now. The new covenant community is allowed to see this, that's all. We peeked over the windowsill. We see it. You say to the person who hasn't peeked over the, I'm not peeking over the windowsill. Why? Because I have a fantasy game. Well, over this windowsill, there's reality. I don't want to look at reality. I want to look at my fantasy game. No. The New Covenant community sees it. To know and understand this is our privilege. And then to announce this to the world is a message of an already accomplished reconciliation. The reconciliation of the world to God in Christ. In the beginning, hey, RK, Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. God in Christ, in the crucified Christ, but not only in the crucified Christ, in the incarnate Christ. When did Christ's sufferings begin? The moment he was born and incarnated into this world. Herod put a hit out on him immediately. He already suffered the hostility of sinners against himself for his full time, his full stretch here in the days of his flesh. He endured the hostility of sinners against himself. He entered into the poisoned atmosphere of this world, this cosmos diabolicus. But of course, his sufferings culminated and became redemptive and atoning only in the cross when he experienced the death of the cross, when he who knew none of sin's pleasures knew all of sin's pain. Becoming sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we would be made the righteousness of God in him. And we have been made the righteousness of God in him. What if somebody were to come up to you and they were dressed like you would be once outraged to see someone dressed. And that's being 
of a gender that you wouldn't suppose should dress that way or look that way or talk that way. And what if they said to you a Christian who they assume will judge them to hell and back? And you, they said, what do you think of me? And you said, I think you're the righteousness of God in Christ. And they would say, okay, it's true. You are crazy. He's a nutcake. <laughs> they said he was a nutcake. They said she was a nutcake. They're a nutcake. But then you could explain it, you see. Then you could explain it. You know something? Knowing that and really aligning to that reality actually conforms you to that reality, ultimately. You actually become what you've become. And that's the power of faith. There's where faith has its power. That's the transformative message. When Christ died for all, in the act of this reconciliation, he died to sin and was liberated from sin, which he willingly put himself under the power of, though he never committed it. He put himself under the power and consequences and wages of sin in his death. And in dying, he became liberated from sin's power for everyone. He who knew no sin became liberated from sin, which he willingly came under the power of without sinning, so that all of us who came under the power of sin by sinning could be liberated with him from sin. It's, the story is told, if you rightly see, Romans 3.26 and 6.7, when the one who died in Romans 8.34, for all human beings died... When he died, they, we, all died to sin and were liberated from sin to live to God as Jesus, now risen, lives to God. Jesus, who knew no sin, who never experienced the pleasures of sin, endured the pain of sin's wages. He never worked for sin. We did. We worked for sin. But we never got the wages. He never worked for sin but got the wages, and the wages are incalculably horrific and terrible. We reap what we sow in a measure, and that's miserable enough in this life, but the harvest of misery ends with our death. And we sow to the Spirit as we are now, allowing the Spirit to lead us into all truth, then we are sowing seeds that we not only reap life in this life, but in the life to come after our death. We reap what we've chosen today. So, he who knew no sin, therefore, came under the power of sin in his dying. But in his death, he was liberated from sin, and when he was liberated from sin... All were liberated from sin. When he was raised from the dead, all were raised with him. So in a sense, it is a matter of being what you are, or at least becoming what you've become. Be what you are, be reconciled because you've been reconciled. Align yourselves with that reality is our message. And let the truth be your truth. Another way of viewing this is what it says in Ephesians 5:14 Awake you sleeper and arise from the dead because you have risen from the dead with Christ but you got to wake up to it. He puts awake first and arise second. Just like we say be reconciled to the world because you've been reconciled. We say to the world be reconciled to God because you've been reconciled to God. We also say to the whole world Rise up with him because you've been raised with him. But wake up to it. That's what's got to happen. Wake up. Satan tried to preempt this with woke. But you can't preempt wake with woke. He tried. He tried. Oh, he, he took his best shot. But it'll fail. 
And it's going to be a difficult time to separate, as Jesus said, a, an evil man, an evil person came into this guy's farm and planted the kind of wheat that is engineered food, like the kind we have to eat now all the time. He mixed that up with the real wheat, the way we used to eat real wheat, real nourishing wheat. He mixed in with it bastard wheat, they call it, Darnell. And someone says, well, here's the preacher comes along. We're going to have to separate that. You can't separate. They look the same until they get to the flower. Leave them alone. Let them grow up together, Jesus said. There'll be a harvest. There's a lot of carefreeness in Jesus and in being in Jesus. Awake, you sleeper, and arise from the dead. Because you've been risen from the dead in Christ. You've been risen together with Christ, but you may not be awake to that. Now, don't think, don't get me wrong here. Don't think I'm saying, like Hymenaeus and Alexander said, that the bodily resurrection has happened already. I'm not saying that. That's the change of condition. We have yet to see that and experience it. But there has been a change of situation, our situation. We've been raised together. What God brings is an awakening that results in Christ shining on us. Awake and Christ will shine on you. And when he does, we'll be arrested and held by his love. We're talking about a change of situation to which we adjust by faith and not by sight. The change of our condition will occur soon enough. In the meantime, let's live and live in and to Christ Jesus, in the leading and by the power of the Lord the Spirit, who pours the love of God out in our hearts. The difference between the new covenant community and the rest of reconciled humanity, notice how I said that, the difference between the new covenant community, those of us that have awakened to this, and the rest of reconciled humanity, and there is no humanity but reconciled humanity. And if you don't know that, you can't be an effective evangelist. Right here is the evangelistic message. Be reconciled to God, he know, who know no sin, became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Be what you already are. That's what an evangelist would say if there was a true evangelist. A false evangelist would say, admit that you're a sinner. Surrender to God. Give up. Repent of your sins. Be sorry for your sins. Promise you'll never do them again, and that'll be fulfilled. Ask Jesus into your heart and life and promise to follow him forever. I'll follow you forever, one guy said recently. What? That's a lot. I've never said that to I don't dare say that to the, I'll follow you for. Peter said that, I'll follow you forever. That was on the eve of him saying, I don't even know the man. What do you mean? The more we put into it, the more we're sure of failing. What we have in common with the whole world of humanity is that we've been reconciled to God by God in Christ. Reconciled to God by God in Christ by God. What distinguishes the New Covenant community from the rest of the world is that the New Covenant community has experienced something of a conversion resulting in a leaving of the old living death. We've left the old living death of curvature in ad se. To be occupied and absorbed with self is the epitome of the experience of death. A livingness of death, a living death. called curvature in ad se, by the, in the, as a Latin phrase by Luther, to a livingness 
We've been saved to a livingness outside of ourselves in Christ, externos en Christo. In fact, this is a living which is not primarily ourselves at all. It is not even primarily we who live, but Christ who lives in us. It's a life that we live in our mortal humanity, yes, but a life that we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God in Galatians 2.20. Now, I'm mixing it up a little bit here, but appealing to people who have already, in effect, been resurrected together with Christ to rise up from the dead, appealing to people who have already been risen together with Christ to raise up from the dead is pretty much the same as appealing to people who have already been reconciled to God in Christ to be reconciled to God. It's actually an adjustment of reality, adjusting our reality. Adjust your reality, whole world, to this. God reconciled you to himself. God did the reconciling of you to himself. Be reconciled to God, then, is simply to be what you are. Be reconciled. And acknowledge your reconciliation. It's an appeal to them that they recognize and then acknowledge that God has reconciled them to himself in Christ and that having died with Christ who died for all, they have been raised together with him. This is not what we used to call positional truth only for believers. There is a positional truth or a, a change of situation that is positional and not yet experiential. But this isn't positional truth only for believers. It's positional truth, all right, but it's for all humanity, all human beings, because of the radical alteration of their situation and therefore of their position before God because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in whom they were raised and included. If you want to speak of my truth or your truth, then this is your truth and my truth. It's the truth as it is in Jesus in Ephesians 4.21. Paul wrote to people who knew the truth as it is in Jesus. The truth as it is in Jesus is the exclusive truth. I alone and in contradistinction to all others, am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. There is no my truth that's true unless it's the truth as it is in Jesus, unless the truth about me is what I am in Jesus Christ. The truth, my truth, therefore, is the truth as it is in Jesus. And I can't live otherwise now any longer. I can't live outside of that any longer. I can't think of creation outside of Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, the act of Jesus Christ being crucified is the cosmogenetic act, the act that brought the new creation into being. And God's intention from the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth was the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, ever new, ever fresh, always living, always glistening, sparkling with life. Jesus is the real reality and the true truth. And he is my truth and he's your truth and everybody's truth, whether or not they, we, acknowledge it. The result of acknowledging this truth is love. It's speaking the truth in love. The love of Christ getting a grip on us. It's his love for everyone without any exceptions at all. So in this central section of Hebrews, we have an emphasis on new, as we do in the central section of 2 Corinthians, and in the center of the passage that we're calling an apocalypse for right now. The love of Christ is the driving force of the new covenant community, and it's living 
in its vocation, in its ministry, in its task, in its vertical finality, its quest for the eternal city, its advance to the beatific vision. Paul didn't say the love of Christ interests us, intrigues us, fascinates me, or charms me. He said the love of Christ controls us, drives us. Above all things, this is the confession of the apostolate Atlot. Above all, the love of Christ is the driving force of the afflicted but well-equipped ambassadors of Christ who have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And we have made this seventh and the most important of the ten affirmations of Tetelestai Phalanx, our affirmation. In closing, I referred to this before. Seslos Speak wrote that Paul was refuting an accusation of insanity here. If you come from the standpoint of an eternal perspective and you're not classed as being crazy, you haven't really got the eternal perspective. He goes on to observe, this Seslos Speak goes on to observe, quote, the Jews often accused a speaker of insanity if they could not understand his elevated or very spiritual doctrine. In the footnotes, he shows proof of this. Jesus' brethren thought he was nuts. Is that your older brother? Oh, yeah, but, you know, he's kind of uh, off. That's what they thought, Mark 3.21. John 10.20, they called him nuts. Paul was called crazy. Much learning has made you mad, Paul, Acts 26.24. So this is evidently true not only of the Jews, however. They're not the only ones who accused people with an elevated spiritual view of being crazy. It was pretty much a universal trait of humanity, to dismiss something as insane or crazy that we don't understand. Somebody's making a living out of saying that I'm wrong by, that's how he makes his living. His ministry is show how I'm wrong, and he never even got my name right. So that's a bad start. Moreover, People aren't called crazy just because of their elevated or very spiritual doctrine. They may be called insane if they're driven or possessed or led or filled by the Holy Spirit, the hegemonic spirit. The Holy Spirit, who pours out the love of God in their hearts, actually monopolizes their thoughts, their disposition, their life, their vocation. And that, in today's world, that's pretty much insanity. Paul says it elsewhere. The spiritual or the pneumatic person, Paul said, though he's, he or she is able to assess all things and discern things as they really are, is not able to be assessed by people around them. The sarkic, that means the carnal, or the psychic, the merely soul-controlled, the curvatura in it say. The truly spiritual person, Jesus said, is like the Holy Spirit who, the old King James says, blows where he listeth. The wind goes where it will, and you can't tell where it came from or where it's going, where it's going to end up. Back in the hippie days, we used to say, where's he coming from anyway? And that's exactly what, where is he coming from? Jesus said, we that are born of the Spirit, those that are born of the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit, people like Nicodemus can't figure out where we're coming from or where we're going to. Where are you going with this? Where are you coming from? But the spiritual person knows where everybody's coming from and where everybody's going that isn't spiritual, but those who aren't spiritual can never figure out the spiritual person, where they're coming from. I'll tell you where they're coming from. The high and holy place that God inhabits, it's called eternity. A perspective that's eternal. So as we begin to close and as we close in earnest... 
When did Paul come to this conclusion? When did he start being controlled? When did he conclude that one died for all and then all died? I think upon seeing the face of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and hearing a word from his mouth on the outskirts of Damascus, Paul evidently was bowled over by an insight just by seeing his face. Seeing this Jesus whom Paul had been violently and murderously persecuting. He had to see the love of Christ in his face for his nemesis, the worst persecutor. He sees love, unconditional, unrestricted, and limitless in the eyes and in the face of Jesus whom he meets. And Jesus doesn't say, hello, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, and you're going to hell, buddy. I've been waiting for this time of confrontation. Damn you to hell. You know, he simply says, yeah, I, it's true. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Oh, and I have a commission for you. Be my chief apostle. How's that? Well, Paul figured out from that point on, if he, if he views me that way, then when he died on the cross, he must have died for me. And if he died for me, he, he must have died for everybody. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. That's reality, and that's a fact. I'm not going to skirt the fact. And I've chosen you to be a special vessel to carry my message to the world. Paul saw and actually said this later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, he who said light shine in darkness has shone into my heart. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. I think Paul saw it then. He saw in the face of Jesus the saving light of the knowledge of God, the light of universal saving mercy, and that light shone into the darkened heart of Saul of Tarsus. In that moment, Paul must have had the insight that, gives, that he gave us in 2 Corinthians 5.14. One died for all. He must have if he died for me. Then all died. But then I also think that Paul thought about this for quite a while. He said, could it be? He asked a question for reflection. In fact, he probably took the path that Lonergan speaks of in his cognitive theory, that unconditioned judgments or conclusions are made after reflecting on insights and asking if a given insight is in fact true. Could this possibly be true, that this one died for all and that all died when he died and were raised when he was raised? The French say, le jugement est le fruit de la réflexion. Judgment is the fruit of reflection. An unconditioned judgment is made when you come to a conclusion that nothing can come against anymore because you've asked every possible question against it, lodged every objection you can against it, which is what I did against USSJC for 10 years. And then I got somebody say, well, I know that's not true. And I say, well, where is your evidence? because I'd have to give you 1,817 eight pages just from Revelation of notes, 1,878 from just Revelation. Then there's John, Paul, and then there's the Justification series and Better Call Paul and Romans Reading Light and, and all these. That, I'd have to give you all that as my evidence. So I believe Paul instantly knew, intuitively realized by divine revelation right at the moment that Jesus was Yahweh, the God of Israel, but that he also, the Son of God, loved Paul and gave himself for Paul at the cross. As Paul no doubt noticed Jesus' pierced hands. And that if he loved Paul, his nemesis, that much, he must have loved everybody in the world and gave himself as a sacrifice for them all for us all. So Paul also understood right then that he himself had died when Jesus died, and that if he had died, then all had died when Jesus died. He must have realized in a deluge of blazing light that this Jesus of Nazareth was the last Adam, the second representative man whose death on the cross had to include 
all human beings and make all human beings new. Can this really be true? It happened to me in the sense that I saw for a flash and a moment and knew at a moment that Jesus' salvific significance was universal. I knew it. But I wasn't content to know it. I said, can this be true? And then for 10 or 11 years, put everything I could against it. From the scriptures and from objections elsewhere and reason objections. Now I know and could stand in the gallows and say, yeah, it's true. Upon a soul-encompassing period of reflection, Paul, no doubt, passed through his brain all the scriptures he had memorized, meditated upon, and mastered since his early childhood. And he came to the settled conviction that, yes, this one, Jesus the Messiah, had died for all, and that when he died, all died with him, died to sin, to live evermore. Paul had come to the unconditioned conclusion of USSJC, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal saving impact of the cross of Christ. So have I. So have many of you. So must the new covenant community of the 21st century, if it's to be an effective apostolate of Jesus, and if as ambassadors it will make an effective appeal to the world to be reconciled to God. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to mix it up with the word and to mix our faith with the message. I pray that you'll sort everything out that's come forth today and that it will take us up into your joy. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. And when the scriptures were properly understood and exegeted, the people went out rejoicing. For the joy of the Lord was their strength. Amen.